1: which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Should Whole Foods be allowed to stop its employees from wearing Black Lives Matter face masks or T-shirts on the job? Whole Foods fired workers in at least six states for wearing BLM apparel and the National Labor Relations Board is now prosecuting the company, which is owned by Amazon, seeking a change in policy and reinstatement for the workers. Joining me is Anne Marie LaFasso, a professor at the West Virginia University College of Law. and tell us about the case the National Labor Relations Board and its general counsel Jennifer Abruzzo is making in court.
2: So Jennifer Bruzzo is pushing the idea that wearing Black Lives Matter is a matter of solidarity to get better working conditions for people of color. And therefore, that that is protected activity under Section 7. And because it's protected, an employer cannot fire you for that reason. Now, there's always employers can always bring in justifications that can override that. But she's saying there is no real justification here she's presenting this first to an administrative law judge, and then she will present this to the board, the board can decide whether or not that is correct. And it can do it on different levels. So first, it has to decide, is this really concerted activity? Is it concerted activity that hasn't lost its protection? And then, is there an employer justification? So that would be the basic analysis.
0: The Supreme Court's ruling that employees have the right to speak out on issues reasonably related to their jobs, does that play a part here? Yes.
2: So the Supreme Court said in a case called Eastex, um, in that case, there were employees that were way above minimum wage in Texas. They were circulating like some union literature, and the literature said two things which were controversial. One was, push your politicians to vote in favor of raising the minimum wage. And the second was, tell your Texas state legislature not to um, not to change the Constitution to be a right-to-work state. So those are major political issues. And the Supreme Court said that this was concerted activity. And it didn't matter that it wasn't about this particular employer. For example, Um, They were already unionized, and they were also um, paying way above minimum wage. So what they were really saying is that any worker in the country is allowed to peacefully talk about the working conditions of any other workers. So if part of the Black Lives Matter movement is about also being treated fairly as a person of color in the workplace, then anyone can pass around that literature. Okay, so it seems to me that Black Lives Matter in that step would probably pass the concerted activity portion as long as there's more than one person or as long as they're trying to do it for collective reasons. So the question then becomes, well, is it losing its protection for some reason? And so that would be if they got violent, for example. If they get violent, the employer can fire them. If they do things that are intentionally trying to sabotage other workers, they can fire them. There's been no evidence of that here. And so it seems to me it would make that cut. And then the next thing is, well, then is there a justification, which is going to be the strongest argument for Amazon?
0: What's the best first line of attack for Amazon?
2: It's possible that the board can say that, wait, this is too attenuated from the workplace for it to really be protected, concerted activity. And so if it's too attenuated, it could lose on that ground. And that would be another place where the employer could attack. If I were the employer, that would be the first place that I would attack. But what they've been doing is saying it's provocative, that somehow it's losing its protection. That's really a losing argument for exactly the reason that Jennifer Abruzzo said. She said, would we have said that? Should we have said that in the 1950s by just, we can't hire black people because it's provocative and customers will not want to come in here? That can't be the reason. And that was a really great response that she made. So it's really what they should be attacking is, well, this is too attenuated from workplace. That might be a better argument. Now, let's say that they lose that argument. Then they have to come in and say, well, we have our justification. So one justification would be we have a uniform, so we don't let any other t-shirt. If that's true, that's a pretty good justification. If they don't let any kind of t-shirt at all, political t-shirt, that may win the day. But if it's just buttons... Buttons are usually something, if it says like Black Lives Matter, BLM, workers' rights, and a button, that's going to be much harder for the employer to justify because buttons are almost always going to be considered something that an employer just is not allowed to touch. So, for example, if it's like a big button that's neon green and interfering with really with customer, it would just be too distracting then they can win that. So they would have to argue that a small button is just so distracting. It's like neon green. So that would be the analysis. Not knowing all the facts, because the facts come out really in the administrative law judge's hearing. You know, what were they exactly wearing? Were they, was it just T-shirts or were there buttons? Because I've seen some different reports on this. So that's how it's going to be analyzed. But then the next step is whatever the board does, is not enforceable till a court has approved it in what's called a petition for review or an application for enforcement.
0: So an administrative law judge makes the first decision, then the board makes the second decision. Does it base it on the administrative law judge's decision?
2: The only thing it will give deference to on the ALJ would be credibility findings. This sounded like there weren't really credibility issues that everyone's Pretty close to agreeing on what the facts are, but I, I don't know. So the board then gets to make the policy at that point. The board is really a policy-making body, so the board can say, "Well, we're changing our policy." So different general councils have been willing to expand or contract how much politics really relates to the employment conditions. So I'll give you an example in uh, South Africa during um, apartheid. It turned out that when when people would would go against um, apartheid, it was very much also a working issue, and so what looked like was a political issue, turned out to be really a working issue. The same thing in like Latin America, on a lot of unions, they look very political because they're going against the government, but the government's what's giving them the job. I use those examples in the international setting because it's easier for Americans sometimes to understand it if it's not in their own backyard. So here. This Black Lives Matter is definitely a political movement, but it doesn't matter if it's political. That's sort of irrelevant. The question is, is it also a working class movement or is Black Lives Matter saying something about the working person? Now, I think someone was saying, well, what about if they wanted to bring the Confederate flag? Well, that's very different because the Confederate flag is not about a working class movement at all or the KKK. The KKK is a terrorist organization. The problem is some people want to label the uh, Black Lives Matter movement as the same as the left-wing version of sort of one of these more right-wing political movements. So that's a losing argument. That's not going to win in court. There's no evidence of that. Yes, there's been some riots, but there's been riots for abortion rights is rights for lots of legitimate causes. That's not really what's at issue here. The question is, one, is it concerted activity? Concerted activity is where you have two or more people or one person trying to get group activity that is improving the working lives of workers. If they become violent at work, it would lose its protection and they can stop it. But there hasn't been violence at work. So that's why I say that's really not going to work.
0: This has to go to a court and the appellate courts, a lot of them are very conservative. I mean, I'm not even sure if this Supreme Court would make the same decision on speech. So is there a problem once it reaches those levels?
2: It's possible. Yeah. I mean, because it's Amazon and Amazon does business everywhere in the country, if Amazon loses at the board, that then it can choose to go to any court in the country. So it can choose it can choose, like, the most conservative court. Some of the courts are p- pretty liberal also. So chances are it's not going to choose the Ninth Circuit. Chances are it wouldn't even it wouldn't choose the Second Circuit. Chances <laughs> are it would choose, say, the Fifth Circuit. So it goes to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit says, we disagree. Um, let's just say it goes that way. I don't know. The board might say, look, this is too far. Um, or it could say, actually – it is concerted activity. It is protected, but in this particular case, there was justification. So put all of that aside. But let's just say it goes against the employer. Then the employer would take it to, say, the Fifth Circuit, the Eleventh Circuit, something like that, and then say um, that court would have to distinguish East Texas at that point. So the courts of appeals are confined to what the Supreme Court has said. So it would be the board's job to say why Eastex decides this case and decides it either in favor of the employer or the, or the union. Okay, so depending on how it's written, a conservative court might very well approve it because the court's job is not to go against the Supreme Court. So let me give you an example. Is there were plenty of judges that are pro-life, and before Dobbs, they still had to enforce the law. And the law was that you can't put certain um, barriers to women who want to have an abortion. Now it's the opposite. So there's a lot of liberal judges, and they have to abide by the Supreme Court. And most of them really do most of the time. Now, you say, okay, well, then it goes to the Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court's not going to take one case because it's out of whack. Let's say the Supreme Court thinks, yeah, you know, East Texas was wrong. We want to reevaluate East Texas. They're not going to do that unless there's a split in the circuits. This would have to start to really what's called percolate or ripen in the circuits. So this would take years before it would go to the Supreme Court. This case itself would not go to the Supreme Court. Um, I'm 99 percent sure because the Supreme Court wants to have conflict and really wants the courts to think about it.
0: You mentioned Jennifer Abruzzo. She was a lawyer for a union before. She's the daughter to two union members. How does she differ from past general counsels? What is she trying to accomplish?
2: Traditionally, Democrats have been pretty, I'm going to say conservative in the sense and what I mean by conservative is just going by the book. And Republicans, really starting in about the Eisenhower era, were pushing to to um, interpret the act in a more activist way and a politically conservative way. And Democrats didn't get the memo. And so Democrats would just, when they got into power, would just go back to sort of, we're going to just enforce the law like that. It was not until Fred Feinstein in the 1990s under Clinton really started to push more toward not just the agenda of undoing what the Republicans have done and putting it back in the middle, but pushing a more liberal interpretation of the act. And what we're seeing is this whiplash now. It's not always in every administration. For example, the Bush 1 administration was just sort of wanted to bring it back to the middle, but the Bush 2 administration went way over to the right. Um, now, in defense of Jennifer Abruzzo, though, is the National Labor Relations Act, if you just look at it from a textualist point of view, is a pro-worker act. And that's her point. Her point is that, hey, guys, we have been giving this to the establishment all these years, giving up all this ground. But if you actually look at the text of this act, oh, and by the way, when it was enacted, so if you want to look at not just text, if you want to look at context, this was a very progressive act. In fact, If you look at, like, Professor Carl Clare at Northeastern said it was the most radical act ever enacted in the country up until that point. And that's true. It's a very radical act if you just look at the text. And so what she's really saying is, we're just enforcing the law. And that in the past, we have not been doing that. We've been just giving over to uh, to the establishment. That's pretty much the political issue. And so what employers want is, they want to maximize their profits, which means they don't want to alienate customers, which means they basically somehow want to go on this line of supporting Black Lives Matter because they have a lot of customers who support Black Lives Matter, but not supporting it so much that they're alienating customers who don't like Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter is a con- is controversial, whether it should be or not. That's for you to decide. But it is controversial, and therefore, this is why employers are trying to figure out that line. I'll tell you, Amazon's not the only one dealing with this. They're just the one who's gotten caught right now. I have plenty of friends in New York City who are telling me this is going all over New York City about whether you can wear Black Lives Matter shirts or not. Here, I'll give you another example. Uh, During Pride Month, you will have a lot of people wearing in New York City a lot of Pride outfits right? Which like rainbow, things like that. That is not really that controversial in New York City. That might be controversial somewhere else. But once you allow that symbolism, why not Black Lives Matter? And that is some of the conversation that's going on in New York City right now. It's like, wait, 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 wait. We do all this for Pride Month and we're supporting the LGBTQ plus community. Why are we not supporting people of color who we know are being discriminated against in the workplace. So that's kind of the issue that's going on right now.
0: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Anne. That's Professor Anne-Marie Lofaso of the West Virginia University College of Law. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The Federal Trade Commission has sued to block Meta from buying the virtual reality company within, the studio behind the popular fitness app Supernatural. The federal regulator says the purchase would help put Meta on a path to a monopoly in virtual reality. The acquisition was small compared with Meta's more controversial purchases of WhatsApp and Instagram, which the FTC did not object to at the time. Joining me is Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. It's a small deal. Why is the FTC challenging it? First of all, the within the company that they're buying
4: actually creates apps for virtual reality space. And I think really here the FTC is thinking about the position they're in with respect to Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. You know, they have a lawsuit where they're challenging those acquisitions. They were once cleared by the FTC, but now the FTC thinks that there was an anti-competitive strategy and they're trying to force the divestiture of those companies. And I think they're trying to get ahead of that here in the virtual reality space. They know that Facebook meta, I should say, has a strategy for future growth in the virtual reality world, which is partly why they changed their name from Facebook to Meta, and that they have the most popular device, the Oculus glasses that people use, and they also have a very popular app store. So at this point, Meta needs the content. They need the apps. And they have some that they've developed on their own, but what they're trying to do is buy a company that has a very popular fitness app. It's called Supernatural, where people do workouts, cardiovascular with weight, their personal trainers, they monitor heartbeat rate, all of that. And the FTC says that by buying this company, first of all, they'll have too concentrated a market in fitness apps because they believe that Facebook has an app that competes with this Supernatural. And they've also said if they don't compete, that it hinders potential competition in the future. Because if Meta didn't buy within, they'd develop their own fitness app that would compete with Supernatural.
0: It sounds like what Facebook has been accused of doing in the past, buying up Mm -hmm. smaller competitors. Absolutely. And, you know, I think
4: there's a document that keeps getting cited by the FTC uh, that Mark Zuckerberg authored that hurts them here because he has a very famous document that says it's better to buy than compete. Right. And I think that's the whole entire background for the FTC here. They see Meta as a company that just wants to buy potential competitors rather than compete with them, rather than trying to be better and innovate and develop on their own. And so that's the case here. You know, I'll tell you, I don't think it's a very good suit because I think it's really arguably the company don't compete with each other. Within is this dedicated fitness app. What Facebook has is a game called Beat Saber, which is a lot of fun, but not for fitness. But you happen to get cardiovascular (laughs) exercise when you play it. And I also didn't necessarily see in the complaint real concrete plans by Facebook to develop internally their own dedicated fitness app. And I think for a court to believe that potential competition is being blocked by this deal that they have to see some real plans that with development, with a budget, with a team, and, you know, an expectation that it's going to go forward.
0: So what stage is the lawsuit at?
4: Oh, we're really early. So they just sued. Now, what they said is by law, the companies could have closed, I think, earlier this month, sometime in the middle of August. So what the companies did is stipulate to not close until the end of this year. And that should be enough time for a preliminary injunction hearing, which is what's happening right now. The FTC is just seeking a preliminary block on the closing. The companies have agreed we won't close till the end of the year, or if we're legally allowed to before that, we'll do it before that. And then we'll see what happens. Um, If they win the preliminary injunction, The plan by the FTC would be then to file a lawsuit internally in the administrative court to actually really delve into the merits to say whether this is an
0: anti-competitive deal or not. Let's turn to another mega-merger, or to a mega-merger, I guess. So the FTC's review of Microsoft Activision's $69 billion merger. First of all, tell us about this merger and why the FTC might object to it.
4: I think this is such an interesting case. So Microsoft has the very popular Xbox console for games, for mobile games, not virtual reality. We're now in just the regular world (laughs) playing mobile games. Um, And Activision makes a lot of games and they have a really popular one called Call of Duty. I don't play a lot of these games. It's called a first person shooter game. (laughs) I I don't know. I couldn't really tell you what that is, but that is what it's called. It's an action game, basically, and essentially Microsoft has only a few competitors in consoles. Now, people can play games on a console, on a computer, on a mobile device, but arguably they may not be all in the same market because you have a different experience playing on a console versus a computer versus a mobile device. And if you look at just consoles, Microsoft has a pretty big piece of that market. Now, Sony PlayStation is bigger and Nintendo is also in there with the Switch. So the fear here would be what's called vertical foreclosure. When I say the fear, I think the concern the FTC might have that Microsoft, once it has this very popular Call of Duty game, would keep that game from its console rivals, and that would hurt its console rivals. I don't think that theory is a winner either in court, and I don't actually know whether the FTC will go forward and sue on that theory. But... I just view this deal as a deal the FTC won't be happy with generally. The current chair, backed by the majority, simply doesn't really like big tech companies getting bigger via acquisition and I think is looking for theories, antitrust theories in which to sue them rather than to settle or clear a merger. But I'm not completely convinced that they will sue because I don't think that they have a very good case and eventually they're going to have to file a case in court that they know that they can win. So what's
0: the timing on this, if there is any specific timing? So we know
4: something about the timing. We don't have details. We we know that Microsoft and Activision uh, did what's called complied with the second request in mid-July. That basically means they completely finished the big subpoenas that they got from the FTC in order to do the investigation of the deal. Once companies comply with second requests, it starts a time clock for the FTC, and it's usually 30 days. So that would have meant that by mid-August, the FTC would have had to make a decision. But it's pretty typical to enter a timing agreement. And we don't know if Microsoft entered a timing agreement, but we assume that it did. And I assume it's probably about 120 days. So I think we're looking for some kind of an activity outcome, whether it's a lawsuit or whether it's clearing the deal
0: in about mid-November. Let's turn to the Department of Justice. There's been news lately that the Department of Justice may soon sue Google over monopolization of the ad tech space. So first of all, there is a lawsuit by states already led by Texas. What's that lawsuit about? And where does that one stand?
4: So I think these lawsuits would be very similar if the DOJ filed a suit because the state suit led by Texas really kind of has everything but the kitchen sink in there with respect to conduct within the ad tech space. It's moving very, very slowly. I mean, they're only at the motion to dismiss stage for the state's complaint. Uh, and it's a couple years old already, and, and combined with consolidated with the state suit are also suits by publishers and advertisers, class actions. And that's going to slow it all down. The federal government has the right to stay out of a consolidation when they bring a sister suit to a private class action, but the states don't, at least not right now. I think there is a bill proposed to pull exempt them also from consolidation, but at least for now they're not, and Texas and the states were forced to put their suits together with these others. The allegation is essentially that Google bought its way into all of the different kinds of pieces of software that are needed to buy and sell a digital ad so that they run the the process from the publisher to the advertiser. And by doing that, they take advantage of that system to benefit themselves and to the detriment of their rivals, and they also push out the individual rivals they have for each of those different pieces of software. And this raises prices for both publishers and advertisers. That's generally the allegation. I believe the DOJ might even, if they file suit, get to trial earlier than that case because that case is moving so very slowly. The DOJ can keep itself out and not get consolidated with it, and I think that's probably what it would do. We do know that they have an existing suit against Google over search, um, and, and Google said is the default search, having agreements to be the default search. But we know that after that they continue to investigate, so I think it's not surprising to me that they're thinking about or may bring another suit.
0: When I looked at this, I'm always hearing Google is being sued, Google is being sued. How many suits are there against Google for anti-competitive conduct? You know, there are a lot. <laughs> you know, I, I have a chart crazy. to
4: keep track of all these suits. You know, So we have the state suit over the ad tech space. We have the publisher and advertiser suits over the ad tech space. Then we have the DOJ suit that's over monopolization and search. And then you have state plus private suits over Play Store super similar to Epic Games case against Apple about the App Store. This is all about just controlling the Android ecosystem, mobile ecosystem, having the Play Store, not allowing other app distribution, or at least not easily allowing other app distribution, forcing Google's payment system and taking pretty high fees. So all of that is ongoing right now. So kind of many areas of Google's business are under assault. So
0: good for lawyers. Um, (laughs) So now, Let's talk about the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. They've got to get a better name than that. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Tell us about that and where it stands.
4: It's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, So, you know, I think proponents really wanted this bill to get a vote before recess. It didn't. It's very much targeted to just the big tech platforms, really just Meta, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft, and that's it. And really, it's called an anti-self-preferencing bill, but there's a lot more in it than just anti-self-preferencing. And it would actually pretty radically probably change the business model for Amazon and for a few of the others. I think it would hurt Facebook the least as compared to the others who, who have a lot of their own vertical products on their own platform. So this bill was it got through the committee um, in a bipartisan manner with a pretty strong vote. There are a lot of hopes for it. But it's unclear whether there are 60 votes for it in the Senate or not. And Chuck Schumer, who is responsible for deciding whether it gets a vote, had said not that long ago that he didn't necessarily think it had the 60 votes. And I believe he doesn't really want to introduce it on the floor unless he thinks it will pass. But what we've heard is that he's promised a vote in the fall. Um, We'll see what happens. I'm still really skeptical about it because we do know there are some senators that have objected to the fact that they believe the way it's written will hinder some of the content moderation that these companies do now and that it's going to proliferate the hateful speech and misinformation and damaging language will proliferate uh, because they'll be afraid of lawsuits over discrimination if they do take this kind of content down or ban certain users. So they'd like some changes, but those changes are a bit of a non-starter for the GOP members that support it. So I think that could be one of the stumbling blocks. Um, We'll have to see what happens in the fall if and when
0: it does get a vote And now, thanks to you, Jen, we are all up to date on what's happening in antitrust. Thanks so much. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. For more of Jen's analysis, you can go to B.I. Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly.